Welcome to the Why and the What Product Management Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Kahn, and today we're hearing from Kavita Krishnan Kamani, Principal Director of PM Supply Chain Engineering at Microsoft. Kavita joined Microsoft in the year 2000, which to me doesn't feel like it should be 20 years ago, but here we are. Kavita started at Microsoft as a developer before moving into product after a few years. She's worked on developer products like .NET, business products like Skype, and over her career has worked on software and hardware products. Kavita started as an individual product contributor and is now managing the managers of product managers. We talk about the evolution of product management over her career and the conversion of Microsoft's internal operations engine, which is the supply chain team, over to a product management mindset. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Kavita. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you, Daniel. So maybe let's uh, start it out with um, how you originally got into product. What was your journey? Um, So I was a developer before, um, and I was getting an MBA at the University of Washington. And partway through my MBA, I switched over to a PM role at Microsoft. And I used to always be fascinated by PMs around me because what I felt was as a developer, my focus was a lot more narrower at solving problems uh, that others had um, brought up to me. What I liked about the PM role was that these people shaped what problems needed to be solved. And I thought that was very exciting. And so uh, partway through doing my MBA, I switched over to a PM role. Um, within a different part of my team. What does that uh, transition look like at Microsoft? If you're coming from engineering, do you uh, start to work a little bit in product or does it does the switch just happen and you're an engineer on one day and you make that uh, switch over to being on the uh, PM side the next? Uh, so uh, for me, what happened is I uh, was I took a PM role in my broader org which meant that people knew me, they knew what strengths I had. Um, I had also, because I was interested in the PM role and so fascinated by it, um, just as being a developer, I was always looking for opportunities to go, you know, do a tidbit kind of learn on the job PM sort of stuff. So once uh, my PM was, um, had taken time off and I decided that, you know, I would go take on some of the spec work and I started doing that, or um, we were going to have this big conference, which is now called the Build Conference at Microsoft. And um, I said, look, uh, we, I would go figure out what our presence in the conference should look like and, you know, what sessions and how would we go do that. So, you know, these are things typically the PMs used to go do. And um, I would stretch out, stretch myself outside of my role to go do that. So I had a pretty good, I would say, um, people knew that I was interested and people had seen me kind of operate in that role. So for me, it was just, um, I had a conversation with the, the head of, of the PM team that, hey, I'm officially kind of interested in making the switch. And, um, you know, he was excited and supportive of it. So then we would talk through where there was need on the team. And so that's how I switched. So it took, it was a, it was not a one day switch process, but it was a thing that was on my radar for some time. And I just acted on it at the particular time. And is, is that a, uh, a typical path uh, for somebody trying to get into the uh, PM role at Microsoft uh, coming from engineering or 
most of the PMs that you're working with coming from a, a technical background? Uh, not really. That is, I mean, there are people who move, I think, from engineering to PM quite a bit because I think as they, and I do think that it is important for a PM, especially if you're working on a technical product and and with, the, you know, developers, it, it is important that you be able to speak their language and that you are technical yourself. So I think it did give me an edge. Um, at the time, I was working on the .NET product, which was a product for developers. So, you know, for me, that for that transition for me actually helped. Uh, but that is not true in Microsoft. We get people um, all the way from who've been PMs their entire career or entry-level people who are just, this is the first job as a PM. So there's a good mix of everything. What kind of roles have you been in um, at uh, Microsoft uh, since you've made the switch over to PM? How has is, how is the uh, career progressed? So since I made the switch over to PM, I was started out as a PM on a developer platform team. So my customers were developers. Um, that was a fairly technical role because as PMs, we would actually write code. We would write sample code that illustrated, you know, if a developer wanted to solve this problem, what is what are the APIs they're going to call and how are they going to get that done? Um, I did that for, I would say, four or five, four years or so in different parts of the .NET platform. And then I decided that I wanted to go work on something that um, that I felt like, you know, I could relate to more as an as an information worker myself. So I moved over to the uh, to the link team, which is now which became then Skype for Business um, and now Microsoft Teams. And it's basically a collaboration and communication product, conferencing product. And um, on that team, I spent about um, six or so, seven years just working on different pieces. I worked on both the client experience, um, and that includes, you know, how I add contacts, how I can do a one-on-one chat, how I can call somebody, how I can join a meeting, how I can present content in a meeting, uh, all, all the way. And I also worked on the on the back end, meaning I worked all on the um, on the back end that that basically supported the whole chat framework. Um, and how that actually worked. I also worked on admin experiences. So when a company decides to buy um, Link or Teams or Office 365, an IT admin has to go do set a bunch of policies and settings and go through that whole deployment process. And so I worked on features that catered to the admin persona, and they care a lot about security and compliance and putting a lot of rules in place. Um, I worked on devices, so the conferencing room devices that you see in conference rooms, where you know you can in you can join a meeting from the device with a single click. I worked on that. I worked on mobile experiences, so I got a good um, you know 360 uh, experience working through these various uh, communication collaboration technologies. Um, I also worked on OneDrive and SharePoint, which is our you know cloud file storage solution, and uh, I got a good mix of client, backend, admin, information worker, mobile, hardware, you know, so it was a good, good learning experience. And um, over the last few years, I believe you've moved into a, uh, a group PM role. How has that differed from uh, when you were working at the uh, con- individual contributor level? Yeah, so I had been uh, both an individual contributor as well as a first-line manager um, during my time in uh, in the products I was talking about earlier. Um, so first-line manager has individual contributor PMs reporting to them. Uh, last year, I moved into what's called a group program manager role, which is 
an M2 role. M2 is it's a manager of managers. So I now have a PM manager under me who has the individual um, PMs reporting to them. And um, it's been it's been great. I was at a point in my career where I was feeling like um, I needed to learn new skills. I needed to increase my scope of influence. Um, and frankly, operating as an M2 has required me to go learn a different level of um, skills around focusing a lot more on building the right culture on my team um, and, you know, delegating and achieving results through others a lot more. Um, and it's, it's been, it's been a great learning experience. What's it been like, um, trying to make sure the, uh, the culture is, um, in the direction that you see would be ideal for your team? How, how did that look when you first, uh, moved into that position and what, what sort of things are you trying to, um, impact there? So, um, I want to tell you a bit more about this team that I'm in. So, uh, after my time in, you know, office where I worked on all those communication collaboration products, I was looking um, to do something else and I ended up chatting with somebody who I had worked with before and he had come to this team. It's called Core Services Engineering and Operations. And basically what it is, is is the team that runs all of Microsoft. So this is the team that owns all of the financial systems at Microsoft, our HR, payroll, legal, you know, sales and marketing engine, uh, you name it, like everything that is required to run Microsoft, real estate and facilities, everything that's required to run Microsoft as a huge company. Uh, one of the things in there is how we run our supply chain. So Microsoft, in addition to delivering software, is also a hardware company, and we have um, consumer and commercial hardware line of products in the Surface products, or we also have the Xbox or the HoloLens and now we have the PC accessories, you know, the, the standard mice, keyboard um, products. And the supply chain team essentially makes both, it designs those products. Um, it makes it makes sure that we can manufacture them uh, in a cost-effective, high-quality manner, and then distribute them to our customers or to other retailers for selling. So my team is basically responsible for all of the software that powers our supply chain. And this team was part of IT. And IT had this image um, of, you know, we were order takers. And the business would come in. Our customers are internal business stakeholders. So, for example, um, the, the sourcing managers or the factory managers who are managing the launch of particular product will want to figure out which suppliers to use, what prices to negotiate, um, how to manage the product in the factory, et cetera, et cetera. And the those people would give the team here requirements. And this team was known to take those requirements and executing on them. And so they were really good at the, the latter half of what PM should do, which is deliver products and, and, you know, good at execution. But what they were not doing is actually learning and questioning and spending time with the actual customers and figuring out what problems we were solving and were those were those the most impactful business problems to go solve. So that's I took this role because um, the whole division um, was going through this transformation. And the reason the transformation is super important is there are a lot of tech, non-tech companies that come to us and say, hey, Microsoft, how do you run your own systems? If you figured that out at a company of your scale, like 200,000 people, then 
that will work for us. So why don't you tell us what you do? And what we realized is, look, for us to go tell an impactful story, our systems better be modern and our systems better be, you know, things that we are proud of. So what ended up happening uh, over the last year or two is um, the team basically got a whole um, uplift and a lot of people were brought in who have shipped products both inside and outside of Microsoft. Um, and basically we're relying on their experience to say, hey, how do we run this just like we would run a core engineering team or a core product team and not like an IT team? So you were looking for basically an infusion of uh, talent that had experience already thinking in that way to help shift the team over into that new mindset of really challenge and ensure that this is the uh, the correct path forward before just delivering on the spec that they'd been presented. Exactly. So outside of um, this team, you've you've had a um, a career where you've you've walked through a number of different roles within Microsoft over a number of years, and you've seen product management uh, shift a little bit as you've you've moved through that. How have you seen um, the PM role change over the course of your career? Yeah. So I, as I said, I became a PM in two thousand six. At that point, uh, the PM would set. Uh, you know, strategy, but they, we were thinking about it fairly um, at a granular level, like what features do I need to go build? What is the order? And and we would spend a lot of time just managing the project and managing the delivery uh, and not as much time on doing a lot of customer research or industry research or just, you know, spending a lot of time just figuring out why is this problem important to solve or is this the most important problem to go solve? Um, and over the years, um, so as I as I grew as a PM, I saw, you know, with things shifting in the industry. And for, for me, when I was in um, the Link team and the Skype acquisition happened, um, Skype was this, you know, valley company and they came in and there were a lot of good things that they were doing. They were doing a lot of incremental product delivery rather than, you know, two-year waterfall cycles. Um, it also, there was no on-premises component to it. It was uh, it was a cloud solution. And, you know, so that also made it easy because it, it's hard for companies to take on-prem enterprise products and upgrade them every three months. So they didn't have the same challenges either. But they were doing um, a lot of what I call modern uh, modern PM practices. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of... Um, evolution was happening across the company but i got to experience that firsthand as the skype team was getting integrated into microsoft um, and now what i see is um, engineering teams or so the developer teams are what are responsible for driving the day-to-day uh, whether it's the scrum stand-ups or whether it's you know the actual project management and the delivery and the pms are spending a lot more time with just grounding themselves in the customer problems. That's interesting to um, have a a product like Skype come on board, which um, outside of Microsoft is uh, we we see it as, as such a a major product and brand that that is is so commonly used. But beyond just being the acquisition of technology and a product that Microsoft can now sell when they when you first brought it on board. Um, that there was such a strong cultural impact to 
their actual process around how they were were building and um, the, the kind of technology that they were using. That's uh, that's really interesting to sort of have that insider's look on on how there was actually uh, waves of cultural change that came with with that acquisition as well. Yeah, and I would say that you know also with the Yammer acquisition or other acquisitions we've done, like a lot of the companies um, that were smaller that were primarily. Uh, services companies and cloud companies, right? They were they did not have you know that enterprise box product mindset that that Microsoft originally had, and that was what we were known for. We were known for three year Windows cycles, you know, two three year Office cycles, um, you know, on premises. Like the Link Server product was an on premises product. You don't IT admins just don't go install these things and deploy these things every three months. And but these companies that were um, you know, modern web web based you know solution web based solutions that could up that could be updated every single day had a very versatile set of practices that we didn't have. So I think you know I'm giving you the vantage point from being in the link and the Skype team, but I think this transformation was happening across the company as we shifted to uh, a more cloud to being a more cloud based company. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how the. Uh... The, the technology itself that that change from being on prem and it can actually impact the the agility of um, what you can do when it comes to making changes along the way because as you're saying yeah being in the cloud really gives you that ability to deploy on a much faster cycle in a way that of course when you are going out and rolling out things to a physical premises you, you just don't don't have that flexibility so to see that shift has uh that's that's interesting to be along for that journey have you seen um any trends that have started um more recently that that seem to be impacting the way the product management functions are you are you seeing things that you expect to see or or, or would be excited to see in, in the future of um how product management could uh could occur yeah i think the you know focus on you know, really understanding your customers, doing a lot of iterative development, like trying, you know, getting some requirements, trying, figuring out what your MVP, uh, minimum viable product is, delivering that, learning from it um, was was there. What I've started to see uh, recently, again, like this is the last few years, is a lot more focus on data. And, um, you know, in addition to kind of doing things iteratively, being very mindful of, how do you know if you're um, progressing in the right direction? What data do you need to collect? And what are some of your leading measures that tell you, hey, am I marching towards the, the goal that I was after? And now uh, we've just gotten a lot better as a company on defining those goals in terms of metrics. Um, and um, that, that's that been great to see. So, you know, to me, I, I see that a product manager has to have uh, a lot of data literacy that was not necessarily the case before, um, and of course, with uh, with artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, we want to do a lot more things that delight the users. Like instead of waiting for them to take action, uh, we want to be able to see what you know what what are some behaviors or actions that we have seen with the vast amount of data that we now are able to collect and process, and how can we more predict or or suggest to the user, you know, what to do next or make it more um, delightful for them. 
where do you feel like is a um, a good place to try out um, AI or ML within products as opposed to putting a, uh, a rule-based system in where you're just continuing to try to tweak that to the right experience? How do you decide whether or not um, ML or AI is, is appropriate for something that your team is working on? Um, I think it's, um, you see... When you're able to see, it, it again starts with what are the customer problems, uh, what are the business problems that we are having. And so, for example, you know, in the case of um, supply chain, you know, one of the things that we are looking at is, hey, we were having too much of uh, finished goods inventory. And it's one of those things where, you know, if you have too much, you're locking in um, unnecessary capital. If you have too little, you can't deliver on the customer promise. So, you know, you have to have some buffer, but having too much of it is not is not good. And so that is an example where, you know, we were able to use uh, data um, to see, let, let's look at historical data and how and when is it a good time for us to, um, you know, figure out what strategy to use. When we're launching a new product, we're typically building it to a target, right? We, we um, forecast some target that we think we'd be able to sell and we build to that target. Once the product is launched, then you have a lot more signals that you get from the market. And so you might uh, switch the manufacturing process to be more of an assemble to order uh, where you're able to have some, um, you know, semi-finished goods available. And then, but you wait until the final transformation, until an order comes in and things like that. So that was a classic example where we, again, we had to start from a business problem, something the business was struggling with. We had to use data to see, hey, what was the impact? Because this would have saved us millions of dollars. And um, then we said, okay, this is seems like we could go look at, see if past um, uh, past data could predict for us in the future how we should, how and when we should shift what kind of model we are going to use to go fulfill orders. And so that was a classic example where we used machine learning. So it's it's a good example where you've already got a, a large data set already available to you and you could start to analyze that is um, useful as opposed to if you're putting more of a rule-based system in of create X amount of inventory that's going to be less flexible. And if you've got that historicals that you could work with, that seems like a really nice starting point. So a lot of it seems to come down to uh, do you have a data set that you can trust and, and start making that that educated uh, system align with the the business goals themselves. And so it's it sounds like you were in a, a position where where that would work well for you. Um, Want to switch gears to a really simple question for you, and just because you're you're coming from Microsoft, um, I feel like this this comes up occasionally. So what is what is the reason that um, Microsoft uses the program manager uh, language for product as opposed to uh, the product manager uh, convention used elsewhere? Yeah, I think it's uh, very historical. Uh, from what I understand, Microsoft was one of the first companies to come up with the role to begin with, and um, I was in a recent. Um, talk that um, somebody was presenting that about, uh, you know, early in Microsoft, they were trying to move really fast. And there was basically some, everybody was kind of operating in, it was a very small company. So everybody was trying to do everything. And then they, to optimize things, they decided to divide up roles and responsibilities a little bit. And they kind of came up with the role of the program manager. And um, 
after that, I think obviously it's now a very popular role in the industry. So um, the the title is program managers, but um, in Microsoft there are various flavors of that. There is the product PM. There is um, there are still uh, you know technical program managers, and um, there are also like operations program managers. And so there is um, we uh, we basically talk about even if the title says program manager, we are the mentality seems to be shifting to there are really five. Um, and a key accountabilities that we think PMs must demonstrate. Uh, one of them is demonstrate customer obsession. Another one is make data-driven decisions. Another one is create a vision. Another one is tell the story. And the last one is deliver the right outcomes. And so I think these, to me, are persistent themes, no matter what PM role you are in. Uh, but definitely very important for a product manager uh, to kind of go follow. And outside of um, your your work at Microsoft, I know you're involved in um, a lot of work ensuring that uh, product management thrives um, as a practice in a community. Uh, specifically, I know you've done a fair amount of work with um, a group called Women in Product. Uh, what is uh, Women in Product and um, what do they do? So Women in Product was founded a few years ago in California by um, some folks who worked at Facebook and are in the Bay Area. And um, I attended their conference about two years ago, um, and um, I really liked it. And basically here, as the as the product management uh, field, I think, is still very nascent and you know going through a lot of evolution from traditional project management to product thinking i thought that that was a good community to go um, associate with also it was aligned to, uh, compared to grace hopper which is basically all technology fields and women in tech this one was very focused to uh, product management and so i um pinged a few people here in the seattle area because facebook had an office in seattle too that hey we should have a local seattle chapter um so we can do some events and, you know, build a community around here. So a few of us are essentially volunteers for the Seattle chapter. And um, we try to do um, events every couple of months and try to get local companies to sponsor those events. So we've had we've had an event last year at Microsoft around what what lessons have you heard from um, what lessons have you learned from successful and failed products? Um, there have been workshops. There have been various topics um, that we do, and um, it's it's a community it's a community that's still growing here in the Seattle area. But um, I just wanted to make sure that we have we have some forum because I don't want to be I don't want to be in this isolated Microsoft bubble. That also gives me a chance to go meet some people outside of Microsoft. Yeah, it, it sounds like a, a great initiative and it sounds like it's uh, growing. Um, how is it that um, people can get involved with it um, if they wanted to attend your events? So there is a Facebook group called Women in Product, which is the all of Women in Product. And it now has a lot of chapters um, over the all over the world. Um, and there is a Women in Product uh, Seattle community uh, group as well. So people can join there. We also, I think, have a LinkedIn group. And so we would love to have um, current and aspiring product managers um, join that community. That's fantastic. I'm uh, sure some people will go and uh, check that out. Um, You did a little bit of uh, mountain climbing last year. um, And I I read the, uh, the blog post that you, 
you put out on that afterwards, there were some interesting thoughts that you had as sort of the, the lessons learned from that, that seemed to be applicable to, uh, the, the world outside of mountain climbing itself. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, that challenge that you put on yourself and how you, what you think, um, you learned from that, that you've applied to your career and life in general? Yeah, so I wasn't even much of a hiker. I'd probably done a handful, maybe 10, 15 hikes in my life uh, before that. And uh, last year, um, I decided to sign up to climb Mount Rainier. I happened to be doing a class at the gym where the instructor was uh, was essentially going to lead a group. And so I decided that, uh, you know, I would give it a shot. And I basically started from nowhere. In fact, I told him that I don't even know whether I could do this. And he said, no, you know, we'll figure out. Part of the plan was they would evaluate where you were at and create a training plan um, and give you give you a plan on how you build both your endurance um, and cardio and strength to kind of go set for a, set out for a goal like this. So I did that. And, uh, you know, I submitted Mount Rainier, which is the tallest mountain here in Washington State, um, and it's a it's a volcano it's a volcano and it's a glaciated glaciated mountain, and so it required a bunch of very technical mountaineering skills um, to go do. But I think what I realized through the training was, um, see, it's it's important to have a lofty goal um, that seems kind of unreachable, because I don't think you grow yourself much if you keep doing the same thing over and over again that you know that you can do. Um, so just to grow yourself, to stretch yourself, I think you have to um, have something that looks uh, unachievable. But then obviously you have to break that down and say, okay, what can I what can I do now? How can I break this down? What should be my next step? Uh, and if you know it seems daunting, rely on experts to go help create a plan for you. And then you have to have the discipline to stick with it, even when the going gets tough. So, and there are a lot of times because it's physically demanding, it's mentally exhausting. Um, you know, I've had training hikes in in rain, in cold, in 35 miles per hour wind. And you feel like, you know, feel, really feel like giving up. And you have to really know why, um, you know, what's the enduring thing that you're after and why you want to do this. And for me, um, my dad had passed away with uh, cancer um, in 2017, and it was a pretty trying time for my entire family. Um, and so for me, I really wanted to um, honor him. And um, he put up a very good fight, and he was a really positive, really positive and very cheerful person. Um, and so I really wanted to honor his life. And for me, it was I had said, look, I'm going to climb Rainier. I'm going to take his picture to the top of Rainier. And um, there were times, even on my Rainier climb, where I was exhausted. The altitude was hitting me. And um, I felt like, you know, am I going to make it or not? And I remember very distinctly my the rope lead, the guide, telling me, dig deep. And, you know, you need to have meaning in what you're doing. And if you do that, then and you need to have all this plan, you need to stick with it, you need to trust others, um, and you need to keep pushing through the painful moments. When you do it, it feels amazing. And so when I made it to the top, it was, I mean, it was one of my most memorable lifetime moments, I would say. It looks like a, a great challenge to have taken on and, and one that uh, I'm sure you're proud to have achieved. And there's that great picture you mentioned of uh, – 
your father and that picture of you holding uh, that picture of you father, your father on the mountain, which is uh, really great to see. Um, there's there's something that you touched on just now, and it, it sounds like you've touched on a couple of times is um, the guide telling you to when it gets tough, really dig deep and um, understand why it matters. And um, when you were talking uh, before about those competencies that you look for um, for somebody who's a PM at uh, Microsoft, one of them being um, that that you're looking for them to be able to uh, tell the story well and um, to to have that strong concept um, as a as a PM of making sure that you and everybody else understands why it is that um, what's being done is being done as a, a central tenant um, seems like a really good thing to focus on, which which seems to be an ongoing theme in um, your work and the and the way that you've been thinking about product, which is great. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, resources that. Uh, that you would recommend um, what's what's inspired you or um, impacted the way that that you practice as a PM that you might recommend to others I think my favorite book um, of all time it isn't a recent book it's the lean startup by Eric Rice and I think that really reinforces the build measure learn loop which is I think very critical for PMs because I feel you're not really going to know everything at the beginning. You do want to go as deep as possible to understand uh, the problem, ask a lot of why, and really get to the root of uh, root of the problem. Um, but you sometimes have to a make some assumptions, or sometimes you have to scope things down to show that you can make progress, and then you have to test it, and then you have to apply the lessons that you learned and tweak it and move on. So I think he does a great job um, in emphasizing how important that build, measure, learn loop is. And it's not something that only startups can use. It's something that everybody can use um, whenever they're faced with, you know, a big, big problem. Yeah, it's a, a great book. And yeah, I'd, I'd certainly recommend that as as well myself. Um, Kavita, it's uh, been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm so glad uh, we, we had a chance to talk about um, your your journey from engineering through to uh, being the manager of um, other product manager managers um, at Microsoft and um, everything that's changed along the way. It's been um, extremely interesting chatting. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Um, Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Kavita for taking the time to chat. Links to Women in Product, Kavita's mountain climbing blog post, and the Lean Startup are available in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, you can help by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. To catch future episodes, make sure you're subscribed to the Why in the What Product Management Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting service.